have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And in a little bit, we'll begin in verse 16. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 16. Um, one of the things I, I love, love about our church, and I mean this in a nice way, really, it it's can be kind of a quirk, is that Pastor Jay loves to bring a stack of books, and he, like, you should read this book and read this book, and I don't know, I, I, I end up spending way too much money on Amazon um, at times, and I don't read all of them, to be honest. So if that sometimes discourages you, I can't get to all those books. The book I brought this morning is a little bit easier. It's The Tale of Jemima Puddle Duck by Beatrix Potter. So I, I feel like you could probably knock this out in the next couple of weeks. But one of the things I love about children's literature is there actually is a lot of wisdom. Good, good children's literature has a lot of wisdom. It teaches you things without having to experience them. I don't know if you've heard the, the saying, but you know, there's, there's two ways, ways of gaining wisdom. One is through your own stupidity, and then you learn the lessons, and the other is through other people's stupidity. And so today we're going to learn through the stupidity of Jemima Puddle Duck um, just a little bit as we get ready to look at 2 Corinthians. I'm not going to read the whole book, but Jemima Puddle Duck is a duck, and she wants to hatch her own, lay, her own eggs. Um, but the farmer's wife thinks she's a bit of a bird brain and doesn't really trust her with watching her own eggs. And so she's kind of upset about this. There are hens, they get to lay eggs and watch their own eggs and grow chicks. Like, why can I do this? So she decides that she's going to go off on her own. So she's going to leave the comfort of the farmhouse, and she is going to go and hatch her own eggs. So I'm going to pick up kind of in the middle of the book while she, she's landing. So Jemima alighted rather heavily and began to waddle in search of a convenient dry nesting place. She rather fancied a tree stump among some tall foxgloves. But seated upon the stump, she was startled to find an elegantly dressed gentleman reading a newspaper. He had black prick ears and sandy-colored whiskers. Quack, said Jemima Puddle Duck, with her head and her bonnet on one side. Quack. The gentleman raised his eyes above the newspaper and looked curiously at Jemima. Madam, have you lost your way, said he. He had a long, bushy tail, which he was sitting upon, as the stump was somewhat damp. Jemima thought him mighty civil and handsome. She explained that she had not lost her way, but was looking for a convenient dry nesting place. Ah, is that so? Indeed, said the gentleman with sandy whiskers, looking curiously at Jemima. He folded up the newspaper and put it in his coattail pocket. Jemima complained of the superfluous hen. Indeed, how interesting. I wish I could meet with that fowl. I would teach it to mind its own business. But as to a nest, there is no difficulty. I have a sack full of feathers in my woodshed. No, my dear madam, you will not be in anybody's way. You may sit there as long as you like, said the bushy-tailed gentleman. He led the way to a very retired, dismal-looking house amongst the foxgloves. It was built of branches and turf, and there were two broken pails, one on top of another by way of a chimney. This is my summer residence. You would not find my earth, my winter home so convenient, said the hospitable gentleman. There was a tumble-down shed at the back of the house made of old soap boxes, 
And the gentleman opened the door and showed Jemima in. The shed was almost quite full of feathers. It was almost suffocating, but it was comfortable and very soft. Jemima Puddle Duck was rather surprised to find such a vast quantity of feathers, but again, it was comfortable, and she made a nest without any trouble at all. When she came out, the sandy whiskered gentleman was sitting on a log reading the newspaper. At least, he had it spread out, but he was looking over the top of it. He was so polite that he seemed almost sorry to let Jemima go home for the night. He promised to take great care of her um, nest until she came back again the next day. He said that he loved eggs and ducklings and that he should be proud to see a fine nestful in his woodshed. Okay, we'll return to Jemima in a little bit. Now, I'm sure that you, as discerning readers, can tell (laughs) that the fox is up to no good. (laughs) But Jemima, as Beatrix Potter will tell us later, is a bit of a simpleton, and she misses all of the signs (laughs) that, that that the fox is out to get her. The fox is effective, isn't he? In many ways, he fits the part of a gentleman. He's polite. He's smooth. He sympathizes with Jemima against that nasty hen. Um, he, he is very accommodating. He makes her very comfortable. He gives her everything she needs and everything she wants. But he's a fox. He's a fox. And if there's one thing you learn from children's stories, you can't trust a fox. Now, to lead into 2 Corinthians, Paul is contrasting himself with these false apostles. And these false apostles very much look the part. They cut a good figure in the pulpit. They are smooth. They are eloquent. They have letters of recommendation that tell others what a great speaker this is, what a great philosopher this is. This is somebody that you should trust, and this is somebody that you should listen to. They command a pretty generous salary for their speaking engagements. And if somebody makes a lot of money speaking, you you got to know that what they have to say is must be true, right? Um, but what Paul is saying, in essence, is that they are foxes. They are foxes. That if you look at them from a worldly point of view, through the eyes of worldly wisdom, then perhaps they are impressive. But we need to look at them through the lens of heavenly wisdom, through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the Spirit. The fox in this story is effective. He sympathizes with Jemima. He tickles her ears, tells her what she wants to hear. But again, he is a fox, and he is not trustworthy. The apostles, or the super apostles, as, they, as Paul calls them, who are Paul's opponents here in the context of 2 Corinthians, they are effective. They have a message that appeals to their listeners. They are effective through worldly lenses. But Paul is preaching a message that is in contrast to the world's message. And Paul's message is foolishness to the world, but it is salvation to us. And in some sense, Paul is returning to where he began, and not really where he began, but where he, he began in the letters that we have, back to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read just a couple of passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, you don't need to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 1.21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly, that through the foolishness 
of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So why is it foolishness to the world? Why is it a stumbling block to the world? Now, remember, for the Jewish people of Paul's day um, and of Jesus's day, they were looking for a Messiah who would come into Jerusalem, who would drive out the Romans, and who would set up a kingdom. They were looking for earthly success. They were looking for earthly success. And from a worldly perspective, Jesus was not successful. Through an earthly lens, Jesus was not successful. Jesus had a very small band of followers at the end, and most of them fled. They weren't that impressive. And Jesus was crucified and put to shame on a Roman cross. Who wants to follow somebody like that? Who, by the way, said, take up your cross and follow me. Do you want to be led there? From a Roman perspective, <laughs> this, is a, this is stupid. From a Jewish perspective, they're looking for a Messiah who will save them from the Romans, not be killed by the Romans. Why would we follow a Messiah that loses? From the Roman perspective, we already have a God and Savior. Um, Caesar Augustus called himself the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And he was pretty effective at what he did. He conquered most of the known world at the time. And he held it in an iron grip. And he said that he had accomplished peace through victory. And that following Caesar would get you where you wanted to go. So from the worldly perspective, Jesus is not a success. And from a worldly perspective, neither is Paul. Neither is Paul. If, if church tradition is to be believed, and I, I believe this is probably true, Paul had his head chopped off at the end of his life um, by the Romans. That's not a career path that I'm looking, <laughs> looking to, to follow. Um, that's not what I, when I measure success, what does success look like? Having my head cut off by the government is not the end that I'm hoping for. And so also in the Corinthian context, that's not earthly success. That's foolishness. Why don't you go a different way? But if the message is foolish, the message of a crucified Savior is foolish, then the messengers will also seem to be foolish. If you are a true messenger of Christ, you will be Christ-like in the foolishness from the world's perspective as well. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, And when I came to you, so the message is foolishness of a crucified Messiah. I preach Christ's foolishness. That's, I, I preach Christ crucified. That's foolishness to the world. And then when I came, Paul says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my speech were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. So Paul is going to talk about boasting a lot in these chapters, some of which we've already covered and some of which we're going into. And there's a certain boasting from the world's perspective that is good boasting. And the super apostles are boasting effectively from a worldly perspective. They have letters of recommendation. By the way, in our context too, who do you know? Who recommends you? 
Or if you're looking for a job, you often get letters of recommendation. I'm a teacher. I have high school students coming to me all the time asking for letters of recommendation. Sometimes I don't know if I should write this letter. Uh, but letters of recommendation are something that we still do today. And it's a way of you saying, I know this person and this person endorses me. Paul's opponents, uh, probably Jewish people who were in, in kind of like sophists, who believed in some of the philosophy of the day, they had these letters of recommendation. They had a high salary. Now, you may think that that's not something that we, that's those people back then. Um, but I ask you, who are you more impressed with? The people with small salaries or the people with large salaries? And one of the things that Paul gets attacked for is if he really was an effective preacher of the gospel, why doesn't he receive an income for it? Why does he work as a, a laborer with his hands? If he really was an effective preacher, then he would receive a salary. And contrasted with these super apostles, they receive high fees for their, their speaking. They have the ability to sway a crowd. They have a high salary. They have these letters of recommendation. From a world's worldly perspective, this is good boasting. This is the way that you validate your message. From a world's perspective, Jesus is a failure. From the world's perspective, Jesus is a failure. But Paul believes in the power of the resurrection, which we will get to later on. And if Jesus is a failure by the world's perspective, he was proven to be the Son of God by God's power. In his weakness, Jesus was shown to be Lord and Savior and God. So Jesus is a failure in the world's perspective, but the gospel turns these things upside down. Jesus' crucifixion is the ultimate demonstration of weakness, but through this ultimate demonstration of weakness, we have the ultimate demonstration of God's power in defeating death in the resurrection. So this is in Paul's context. He's contrasting himself with these super apostles who are putting forth their credentials from a worldly perspective with the truth of the gospel. So just to review 2 Corinthians a little bit, 2 Corinthians is one of the most personally revealing, not one of, it is the most personally revealing of all of Paul's epistles. This is one of the things I love about 2 Corinthians. It's also what makes it difficult because so much of it is about Paul himself and his struggles and his relationship with this church. Um, but it's often neglected, I think, because of this personal, as uh, personal aspect of the epistle, but that an immense loss to us. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostolic authority. He's defending his apostolic authority, and he's seeking to reconcile his relationship with the Corinthian church. The tone of this book is emotional and deeply personal. Now, two weeks ago, we took a week off of the series for Mother's Day. But two weeks ago, we saw the importance of both grace and truth, that one without the other is dangerous for our, sp our spiritual health. False teachers present a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. In today's text, we're going to contrast the metrics by which, by which we measure what is wisdom and what is folly. What kind of a message, what kind of a messenger is truly wise, and what kind of a message and messenger is truly foolish. And in today's text, Paul asks for a bit of, a, of leeway. So as somebody who, who kind of has this sarcastic sense of humor. I like today's text because it's dripping with sarcasm. If you don't like sarcasm, I'm sorry, it's biblical. But in today's text, Paul is going to ask for a bit of leeway to speak foolishly. He's like, 
I'm going to be a fool just for a few minutes, okay? So accept me as a fool. If Paul were to accept human standards for judging truth and credentials, he could do so. He had impeccable Jewish credentials and heritage. He had suffered greatly for the cause of Christ and endured hardship. However, such comparison is to miss the point because it confuses the messenger with the source of the message. Confuses the messenger with the source of the message. The gospel is not displayed through the strength of the messenger, but through his weakness. Because by our weakness, just like Christ, his ultimate weakness being crucified on a Roman cross, by our weakness, we can see God's strength and God's glory. If we prepared to read the text, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that by your word, we can see what really is wise. We can have the eyes of our heart opened and to, to see that the wisdom of this world ultimately is foolishness. And that we can see that your son, who you sent, who came from glory, very God of very God, who became one of us and suffered in our place, who became a servant and suffered and was humiliated on a Roman cross, that that represents your wisdom. Father, we couldn't do this in our own power. We couldn't see the wisdom of the gospel through our own eyes. So I thank you that your spirit has enlightened us, that we can see the truth of the gospel, that we can rejoice in it, that we can see it as glorious and we can see it as good and, tr- and beautiful. Um, Father, thank you that you didn't leave Jesus dead and that you don't leave us dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Father, you raised us up again to new life. We're so thankful for the resurrection. We're so thankful for the crucifixion. We're so thankful for your spirit that gives us power. I pray that your spirit will help us as we read the text this morning, as we think about its truth, convict us where we need to be convicted. We pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the spirit. Amen. So I'm going to begin in verse 15. I'm going to read a few verses and then pause, and we'll do that a couple of times throughout the course of the morning. It's kind of a longer text, so we won't read it as a whole. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I can boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Okay, are you picking up that he really doesn't want you to take what he's about to say all that seriously? This is fool talk, okay? But just for a second, indulge me with some foolish talk. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So Paul continues a thought in which, for the sake of argument, he argues as if he were a fool. I want to do a fool argument here for a minute. If he were a fool, he would, like his ideological opponents, participate, engage in credential comparison. So let's stack, let's stack up the credentials. Let's see how this goes. But now for the Corinthians, this boasting would not have seemed like foolishness. That's part of why Paul has to over and over and over tell you, this is foolish, by the way. This is stupid. This is not how I'm really talking. He has to tell us, because for the Corinthians, in their cultural context, this is how you argued for your own validity. You gave your credentials. 
But this is fool talk. This is not as the Lord would talk. This is boasting according to the flesh. So contrasting in the Lord and contrasting in the flesh. Contrasting in Christ and in the world. What is foolish to the world is wisdom to God. What is wisdom to God is foolish in the world. We already talked about Jesus and Caesar. That a Jesus Messiah is foolishness to a Caesar king. <laughs> and But from the wisdom of God, Caesar ultimately lifting himself up will be humiliated, and that's ultimately foolishness. There's two different ways of seeing what is wise and what is foolish. And Paul is going to contrast his own suffering with the glory of the super apostles. So you gladly bear with fools, he says, being wise yourselves. That's not a compliment. He's making fun of them a little bit. You're so wise yourselves, you put up with this. What do they put up with? Well, they put up with what worldly wisdom does to you. They put up with what worldly wisdom does to you. It enslaves you. So they've enslaved you. And this is a, a military image, again, of like Caesar or a general who goes into a city and makes you his slave and, and captures you. It devours you. And the word here for devouring you likely refers to uh, taking of your resources, taking of your money. Remember, Paul did not accept a salary. He worked his fingers to the bone. These guys commanded a great salary, and they thought that that was proof that they really must be something. They're devouring you. Um, they take advantage of you by cunning to outsmart you is the idea. They put up airs, so they, they lift themselves above you. They, they put themselves here and put yourself down there. And then finally, they strike you in the face. And striking you in the face is a sign of disrespect. It's like a slap to the face. And this was actually something you had to balance this well in ancient rhetoric, that insulting the audience was a good sign of rhetoric, that you were effective, but not insult them too much, or they might turn on you. So you had to be able to balance the right amount of insults. I will try not to insult you too much this morning, maybe a couple times. We'll see how I do with that. But the, this is what these sophists, these super apostles are doing to them. They're disrespecting them. They're devouring them. They're taking their resources. They're lifting themselves above them. They're putting on airs. They're striking them in the face. And Paul says, oh, we were too weak to do that kind of stuff. I guess, I guess we're really not much. We didn't take advantage of you. We weren't foxes. Um, if you remember our story, whose whole um, shtick, their whole... Um, goal, the, the goal of the fox in the story is not for the good of Jemima. It's for his own full belly. And the same thing is happening here. And I, I, I just take a little bit of a pause here. Why do we put up with this? Because it's not just people back then that do that. We put up with that today too. I, I don't want to spend too much time picking on on other people. I won't name names or anything, but if you think about the prosperity gospel, for instance, that promises you that if you give to me, that you'll become wealthy. And the only thing that happens is that they become wealthy. They're taking advantage of you. They're eating up your resources. They're devouring you. They're lying to you. Why? So that they can be lifted up. Why do we put up with that? We, we put up with that because ultimately we want what they're promising us because we want the things that they're saying that we will have. We want the wealth, and we, we think that this might be a path to get it. Um, we, we put up with these things to our own shame, and that's what Paul is saying to, to them. Look, they're taking your resources. They're disrespecting you. They're devouring you. They're enslaving you, and you like it. 
and contrast that with me, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. So this section is dripping with sarcasm and irony as Paul takes pains to make sure that the Corinthians understand that such talk is foolishness. The truth and effectiveness of the gospel should not be measured by credentials of the preacher, but by the work of God done despite the weakness of the preacher. So Paul is basically saying, do you want to play this way? Okay, let's go. Now, speaking as a fool, he's going to give four boasts. Um, Our text will only cover three of the four. So if you're counting and you get confused, the fourth one is for next week. Um, But we're going to pick up in the second half of verse 21. He's going to start moving through. All right, we're going to boast according to the flesh. Let's, Let's do some credential comparison. And again, you'll see that Paul wants us to see that such comparison is foolishness. It's to miss the point of heavenly wisdom. Second half of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Again, he's, he wants you to pick up that this is, not, this is not heavenly wisdom. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times... I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? (coughs) Excuse me. So Paul's first boast is his Jewish heritage. And if you remember that Jesus um, grew up in Palestine, grew up in the, the, what is now the nation of Israel, grew up in the promised land. He spoke probably Aramaic. He would have known Hebrew. He would have read the scriptures uh, in Hebrew. Um, he was somebody who was Jewish ethnically, linguistically, in every way that could be Jewish. And Jesus's apostles were also Jewish. So when you're thinking about recommendations, Going back to your heritage, this is an important argument. So these, he uses three different phrases here. First, that he is a Hebrew. That probably refers to his language. Like if you were Jewish, but you really couldn't speak Hebrew, then maybe you're a little bit less of a, of a real Jewish person. Um, Jesus would have spoken you know, Aramaic. He would have had Palestinian origin. Secondly, he's an Israelite. And with that carries the hope and privileges of being a, a member of the nation of Israel. And thirdly, he's of the seed of Abraham. And I think his argument here is he's not a convert to Judaism. He's, he was born a Jew. He, his Jewish heritage goes back all the way. So his first boast is, I am Jewish in every sense, and thus I am qualified to be an apostle. So he is equal to them in this claim. Are they these things? So am I. But we know that from Paul's perspective, this is foolishness. 
This is foolishness. It's not your heritage that makes your message true. It's the, the, it's the God behind your message that makes it true or not true. So this is foolishness. So Paul wants you to see that. But he is making this boast that in every way that they are qualified, I am also qualified. Let's continue with the, the credential comparison. So he's superior to them as a servant of Christ. He's speaking like a madman. He doesn't think this is how to go about establishing truth, but he's a superior servant of Christ. He continues this blistering attack against those he calls super apostles. Their credentials include letters of recommendation, heavy speaking fee, smooth rhetoric. Paul's credentials are highlighted by a laundry list of suffering, yet a steadfast commitment to his message. And he's asking, in a sense, which kind of messenger do you trust more? Someone who commands heavy speaking fees, lots of glory, lots of power, or somebody who suffers for his message steadfastly and doesn't turn away from it. And in a first century context like Paul's, being able to endure hardship without breaking is a very glorious endeavor. This is something that would prove that you're, you really do have it together, that you can endure hardship without breaking. And Paul's saying, okay, let's, let's stack up credentials. Let's measure what do you think is more impressive? Letters of recommendation or all these things that I have endured for the sake of Christ? Which makes you a better servant of Christ? Hefty speaking fees or enduring these things for the sake of the gospel? So he spends a considerable amount of text detailing what he has endured for the sake of the gospel. He's, this shows that his resume can stack up. So he, this list um, is, is long, as we read. I, I'm going to go through it quickly. But he has had to work with his hands. This is something we've seen in 2 Corinthians already. This is not something that's glorious and honored on an apostle. It's something that's shamed and ridiculed, right? If you're a good speaker, you could make your living off of speaking. He's had to work hard with his hands because he doesn't take money from them. He's faced far more imprisonments. Um, as far as we know, it seems as if there's at least four times Paul's been imprisoned. We don't have four records of it, but he speaks of multiple imprisonments, and then there's a couple imprisonments after that, so at least four um, that we can piece together. He has endured countless beatings um, and then facing death. So he moves generally, and then he gets specific. So he's had the 40 lashes minus one. This is a Jewish practice. Um, the, the, the reason for it is that 40 lashes... Is considered the maximum that you can give someone. Otherwise, you might kill them. And so, but they didn't want to ever go off. You know, if you lost count, you know, 41 would be breaking the law. So they would give you 39. So if they lost count, you'd only have 40. Um, I've never been lashed 40 times. <laughs> that sounds difficult. This has happened to Paul five times. Five times he's received the 39 lashes. That's a Jewish punishment. Three times he's been beaten with rods. That's a Roman punishment. I don't know if you remember this from world history, but the axe in the middle and the rods on the outside is something a Roman magistrate would carry. And so when the Roman magistrate was going to go after you, you were beaten with rods. Three times he's endured that. I've endured that exactly zero times. Um, and he's been stoned. And that story is recorded in Acts, as you remember, that Paul was dragged outside the city. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He crawled back into the city and kept preaching the gospel. So Paul's like, well, if you want to be impressed, I can give you some impressive laundry list of things. So he moves from the, the general to the specific. And then what people he has faced danger. I mean, it shifts from the people 
to the dangers faced in travel. Remember, Paul's an apostle. He's going all over the Roman Empire for the sake of the gospel. As he's gone, he's been shipwrecked three times, which none of those are the shipwreck we have in Acts because it hasn't happened yet. So I guess he got shipwrecked at least four times. That seems like extraordinarily bad luck to me. Um, he spent a day and a night on, on the water. He has faced dangers on the road, dangers in rivers. I mean, he's having to ford rivers. I mean, this, this is not a glorious life that Paul is leading. Danger from robbers. And who is a danger to him? Well, from Jews, from his own people, and from Gentiles. Where is Paul safe? Well, Paul is in danger in the city. Paul is in danger in the wilderness. Paul is in danger at sea. And Paul is at danger from false brothers. Even in the church, Paul is at danger. There's nowhere that he's safe. And he concludes with the toil he has undergone, the hard work, the sleepless nights, the hunger and thirst. And that might be a bit of a jab at you know, these Jewish super apostles who would have practiced fasting every once in a while. It's like, well, yeah, if you think your fasting's impressive. Uh, I've, I've been a lot more hard put than that. Lack of shelter from the elements. And then this is perhaps a bit of a jab at the Corinthians. Constant anxiety and concern about the churches he has planted. So Paul has jured all of these things. And his resume stacks up. Just ask you that. Who do you trust more? Somebody who commands a a large speaking fee, has letters of recommendation, fasts every once in a while, or somebody who has endured all of these hardships and keeps preaching the same message and doesn't back down from it? Who would you trust more? Well, I I think I would trust Paul. But to, to take this list and say, well, yeah, Paul's pretty impressive, to compare resumes would be to miss the point. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Paul's taking great pains throughout this passage to make sure you know that this is foolish talk. Remember several times, I'm speaking like a madman. This is the voice of a fool. (coughs) The gospel is Christocentric. The gospel is not a story of human greatness overcoming obstacles. The gospel is of God's glory and power that's displayed in human weakness in Jesus on a Roman cross. The gospel is displayed in Jesus's display of weakness on the cross. So Paul boasts in his heritage, but he, we know from other passages, he counts that all as, as dung, as dirty rags. He boasts in his suffering. But here we get to his third boast, and we're getting more to the, the point where he's driving at. He's going to boast in his weakness. He's going to boast in his weakness. So Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. I'm going to just pause there for a second. This is is actually kind of counterintuitive. So he's giving this the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who is blessed forever. He's taking kind of a, a common Jewish oath of the day. That would begin when you, you say this, and then you're going to make a great oath of something, like a, a promise. It would usually be something impressive. Um, actually, in some Jewish writings of the day, that somebody would take this kind of oath and then give an account of a miracle that they had performed. So I swear by, you know, by the God of Israel that I am not lying. Okay? That's what you would expect, right? But Paul's not going to do that. He's going to take this great oath and then give you something that actually makes him look very weak and small and even ridiculous, in a sense. So the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Arterus 
was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is not a glorious escape. He didn't fight his way through the gate like they do in the movies with bodies flying everywhere. No, he came through a window in the gate and thus escaped. It is not a glorious ending to the story. So instead of a miracle, I, I swear I'm not lying, and you're, you're, you're ready for a miracle. Instead of a miracle, <laughs> we have a humiliation. Kind of like Zacchaeus, if you know the story, being up in a tree. It's kind of a ridiculous sight. This grown man being let down out of the, out of the city wall in a basket. It's a ridiculous sight. But God is shown to be great in human weakness. So Paul will boast about his weakness because it is in his weakness that the gospel and God's glory are most clearly shown. Ultimately, we see this in the gospel. Jesus's crucifixion was the ultimate demonstration of weakness and probably beyond what we normally think. Uh, That Jesus crucified does not look like the pictures that we see. Uh, It was brutal, for one. For two, it's, you're actually much lower to the ground, and that is that people really can get into your face. Three, you usually don't have clothing on, and you, you're, you're, you're there for, for days. It, the whole point of the Roman crucifixion was to humiliate you and make you look absolutely ridiculous. And as Jesus hung on the cross, there were people who were saying, hey, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you come off your cross? Because that's the demonstration of power, that they were looking for. That's what a real Messiah would do. A real Messiah wouldn't let himself be killed and crucified and humiliated um, by Roman soldiers. But Jesus' crucifixion, and remember, Jesus didn't endure the crucifixion quietly and stoically. Jesus, Jesus sweat drops of um, sweat that were like blood, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is an utter humiliation on the cross. But in Jesus' utter display of weakness, we see the ultimate demonstration of God's power. That God raised him from the dead. That the death was defeated. We see an end to all the brokenness and all the hurt and all the pain that we experience in this life is previewed in Jesus' resurrection, previews our resurrection. We have the ultimate demonstration of God's power through the ultimate demonstration of human weakness of Jesus dying on the cross. And the Christian life follows this pattern. I'm going to return for just a little bit. I won't read the whole rest of it, but to our, our friend Jemima. So as you recall, she trusts her eggs um, to this, this sandy, whiskered gentleman. Jemima Puddleduck came every afternoon. She laid nine eggs in the nest. They were greeny-white and very large. And the foxy gentleman admired them immensely. He used to turn them over and count them when Jemima was not there. At last, Jemima told him that she intended to begin to sit the next day. And I will bring a bag of corn with me, so I never may leave my nest until the eggs are hatched. They might catch cold, said the conscientious Jemima. Madam, I beg you not to trouble yourself with a bag. I will provide oats. But before you commence your tedious sitting, I intend to give you a treat. Let us have a dinner party all to ourselves. May I ask you to bring up some herbs from the farm garden to make a savory omelet? Sage? 
and thyme and mint and two onions and some parsley. Now, if you're a cook, you're recognizing something here. If you're not, that's stuff you use for a bird. I will provide lard for the stuff, lard for the omelet, said the hospitable gentleman with sandy whiskers. And poor Jemima is still not aware that she's dealing with a fox. Now, thankfully for Jemima, she's rescued. As she's gathering the onions and the herbs in the garden, a collie dog is like, why are you gathering all this stuff used to cook duck with? And she tells him about this wonderful gentleman that, you know, she met in the forest and he hears all, all of this, asks where it is. They come, they rescue, they drive off the fox. Um, her eggs are broken, you know, sadly. She doesn't get the, the eggs that she so desperately wanted. But she's rescued from the fox. In Paul's day, Paul's trying to help the Corinthians see that these super apostles that, say, that are saying the things that they want to hear, that are speaking in according to worldly wisdom, that ultimately they're foxes. They're not out for their good. They're not out for their good. They make a lot of worldly wisdom sort of sense, but not heavenly wisdom sort of sense. Bad, bad boasting about your credentials is like the fox bragging about his gentlemanly features. Oh, he's very eloquent. He's persuasive. Persuasiveness has nothing to do with truthfulness necessarily. You can be persuaded to a lie as easily as you can be persuaded to the truth. He's smooth. He has a wonderful shed full of down feathers. He's providing for her every need. He's giving her what she wants, telling her what she wants to hear, sympathizing with her, and he's ready to devour her um, for his own dinner. This is also true of sin, that sin promises us things. It promises us pleasure, promises us glory, promises us honor. It tells us what we want to hear, but ultimately it's destructive. Sometimes virtue is difficult and sacrificial, and Christian virtue means taking up your cross and following Jesus. And virtue doesn't always tell you what you want to hear, but it tells you what you need to hear. Godly wisdom tells you what you need to hear. It's not always what you want to hear. So Paul is comparing what kind of wisdom is actually for your good? The eloquent letters of credentials enriching themselves off of you, lifting themselves up over you, or someone who, like Christ, is suffering for their sake, who is in constant anxiety for their sake, who, when they are in pain, he is in pain, <laughs> who, when they are weak and humiliated, he is weak and humiliated. Now, this doesn't mean that effective speaking is wrong. I mean, I would, I would hope that as a teacher and as a preacher that I, I would hope to try to be effective. And I think there's some irony here that Paul's rhetoric is actually very effective. And as I read it, I'm drawn to see, oh, I don't want to follow those guys. I, I'm comparing Paul and the apostles and I'm following along with his argument. So I don't think those things are wrong necessarily. But the question to ask yourself is, where is your confidence ultimately? Where is your confidence? Is it in the flesh or is it in Christ? The temptation to take our faith, to place our faith in earthly standards is just as real for 21st century American Christians as it was for first century Corinthians. Um, I, I'm a high school teacher. I see all the time the actual kind of pain that comes with constant comparison. 
um, often on social media and in other places, this, this constant comparison. It's worldly wisdom, and it's attractive because a lot of people are attracted to it, but it's destructive, and it devours you, and it eats you. It's what everybody else is doing, but it's not ultimately for your good. It's not ultimately for your good. Do you, do you listen to what you want to hear, or do you listen to what you really need to hear? Now, I think there's something really wonderful here, that this is a tough message, but there's also something wonderful. It's a tough message because we want to be those people who are with the times. We want to be those people who others admire. We want to be those that, with worldly wisdom, people will look at us and say, yeah, you, you've, you've got it. But what metrics do we use to evaluate what is good and what is true? We're so easily enamored with the flashy and the trendy The gospel is true, but in many ways it is far from attractive. It requires you to come to an end of yourself, to recognize that you can't save yourself, that you need Christ. And it requires a complete reliance on a crucified Savior. But it's also wonderful in this sense. Aren't you glad that you don't have to have all wisdom for God to accept you? Aren't you glad that God calls the weak and not just the strong? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just call people who have everything together? Aren't you glad that God uses the weak? That God uses those whose strength is failing? That God uses those who have come to an end of themselves because the gospel and God's work in this world is not dependent on human strength. That God most often works through human weakness. And we saw that most clearly And Jesus, the ultimate display of weakness on the cross and God's ultimate display of power in the resurrection. Aren't you glad? Please stand with me as we pray. Father, I I thank you for your people. I thank you that you have called them here, that you have drawn them to this place, that you have made us a a church. Um, And Father, not many of us are wise, according to the world. Not many of us are strong. And not many of us have it all together. Perhaps none of us. But Father, we have our confidence not in our own flesh, not in our own strength, but in you. Father, thank you for your son, the ultimate display of your love for us and also the ultimate display of human weakness. But thank you for the resurrection that you raised him from the dead and that you give us new life, that you raise us from the dead as well. Father, we're so thankful. Thank you that you've given us your spirit that gives us the strength and the ability to live this Christian life. Help us to depend upon him. Help us to look to Christ. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the only name that saves, and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.